chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in these black chair pockets and at the ends of the aisles. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that one. Um, We want everyone to have God's Word. So uh, Romans chapter 3. Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament. So towards the back, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. We're going to Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 21, and the scripture will also be on the screen behind me, if that makes it easier for you. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. Please follow along with me as I read. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can be together this morning. We thank you that we can gather to sing to you and gather around your word. God, this, this word is life to us. These, these words are the words of eternal life. They are from you. They are for our good. They are food for our souls. Thank you. Thank you for this word. I pray, God, that you would help us to to hear what you have to say this morning, that you would speak through me and you would speak through your word, and that for each one here, that we would hear what you have to say to us and that our lives would be changed by it, that we'd become more and more like Jesus through spending time in his word. I pray these things in his name. Amen. I wonder how you're feeling this morning about Christmas. Another Christmas has come and gone. Boxing Day is past, though um, probably a lot of us still have the day off tomorrow. The big show is over. And I wonder if you don't feel maybe just a little bit let down. I can remember when I was, when I was a kid trying to stave off that feeling of being let down as long as possible, just continually reassuring myself, there's, there's a little more Christmas to go, there's a little more Christmas to go. Like I would open presents in the morning with my family, and you know, then there would be no more presents, but I would think, no, but I'm going to grandma and grandpa's house, and I'll see my cousins, and there will be more presents, Then I go there, we open those presents, and I think, it's okay, there's still all afternoon to play with the presents, and then, you know, afternoon passes, we have dinner, and, and then it's just, oh, it's okay. I can still spend two hours playing Donkey Kong Country on the Super Nintendo. It's, it's not over yet. But then, when it is over, when my parents take me out to the car, when I know that all that's left of Christmas is brushing my teeth and getting in bed, I, there's nothing left with which to fight the letdown that Christmas is over. And we can still do that as adults. Maybe, maybe your spouse missed all of the cues you thought were obvious and didn't get the one thing you actually wanted for Christmas. Maybe your kids weren't the perfect grateful angels you thought they would be gathered around the Christmas tree and it was a letdown. Maybe your siblings got into an argument over dinner and and it was awkward and silence prevailed for the rest of the time and, and everybody just left with a bad taste in their mouth. 
Or maybe you've been waiting for Christmas as a time when you could just forget about all the stress at work. And then now as you're facing the week again, it's creeping back in. I don't know what it is for you. But maybe you feel like Christmas just didn't deliver what it promised. All the songs, all the carols we sing are about joy, joy to the world, right? Good news of great joy for all the peoples. So why does joy feel so short-lived? Is there a joy that can last all year? So to get to the heart of that question, is there a joy that can last all year? We need to ask a different question, question, which is, why was Jesus born? Why did he come? What did he come to do? And there are lots of passages that answer that question in the Bible, but this is one of my favorites, and I'm not alone. So at the, at the Bible college where I got my degree at the seminary, the faculty would have devotions. They would get together and study the Bible because they, they teach it all day. They're constantly pouring out. They need to be fed themselves. They get together and they have devotions together. And one, at one of these devotions, uh, a professor stood up. His name was Murray Harris. And he said, this is how he began. He said, I'm glad I don't have to choose, but if I did, I'd choose the New Testament over the Old. I'm glad I don't have to choose, but if I did, I'd choose the book of Romans. I'm glad I don't have to choose, but if I did, I'd choose chapter 3. I'm glad I don't have to choose, but if I did, I would choose verses 21 to 26. New Testament professor gave his life to God's word. If he had to pick six verses for the rest of his life, he would choose this passage. Martin Luther called this passage the chief point and the very central place of the epistle, the very central place of Romans and of the whole Bible. Martin Luther said these six verses are the center of all scripture. So if we're going to look this morning at this passage, we're going to look at at three words in the passage. And if you understand these three words, not only will you understand the passage, but you will understand the message of the Bible and the greatest news in the history of the world. So you can find an outline for this on the back of your bulletin, if that helps you. The first word, we're going to start this off with a lot of fun. The first word we want to look at is sin. Sin. We all lack righteousness. Paul introduces the main theme of this passage right off the bat in verses 21 to 22. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So Paul is letting us know this passage is about God's righteousness. It's about righteousness. And righteousness is a big deal for Paul because all of us, Every human being lacks it. We don't have God's righteousness. Look how it continues in verse 22. He says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is not a word we like to talk about. And when we do talk about it, we don't even always know what we mean. So for some people, sin is... Uh, describes kind of cultural taboos, gambling and drinking, and the kinds of things that happen in advertisements for Las Vegas, right? That's sin. Sin happens in Sin City. And, and in a funny way, sin sometimes is used to describe really rich, decadent foods. Like I saw an advertisement this week for pure sin chocolates. I have no idea what would be in a pure sin chocolate, but I, I don't even want to find out. 
right? That doesn't sound appetizing to me at all. Sometimes we use sin just to refer to kind of the big things, the things that other people do that we would never do ourselves. Of course, it's a sin to kill. It's a sin to abuse a child. It's a sin to exploit the poor. But we would never use that word to describe our problems like envy and worry and gossip. What does the Bible mean when it talks about sin? Well, there's a strong clue that Paul gives us in this passage. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word means, it can mean fall short, it can mean lack. We, all of us lack the glory of God. And what he's talking about is that every human being was made in the image of God. We are the crown of creation. We are able to reflect God in a way that nothing else can. The stars can't, the sun can't, the mountains can't. We can reflect God in his happiness. We can reflect God in his creativity. We can reflect God in his character, in his righteousness. Nothing else can. We were made in his image. We were made to have his glory. And we have all failed to do that. We lack the glory of God. We fall short of the glory of God. God calls us to live lives that reflect him. God told his people um, in the Old Testament, he said, be holy, be set apart, be distinct, be perfect, for I am holy. And Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God made us to be like him. His standard is perfection and we've all fallen short of that. And not like a little bit short either. Like there's nobody in here who could say with integrity, okay, yes, there, there was a time, I can remember, it was August 1996, and I was, I was for about five minutes ungrateful for my children. But, okay, I fell short, I fell short that one time, right? Nobody can say that. We fall short every day. We get impatient sitting in traffic, and we honk angrily at tourists who are still figuring out roundabouts. Right? We envy the lifestyles of partners at work who don't struggle financially the way we do. We, we argue with our spouse over something silly, and then we refuse to forgive them just to not give them the satisfaction of being right. We do this all the time. And even, even those things aren't really the problem. They're not, they're not the deep problem because they're just symptoms of something wrong deep within us. Sins, actions, ways we break God's law, are just symptoms of sin our condition. And our condition is that we have all rejected God as God. He's not first in our life. The first of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before him. The greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the reason why we we drink too much, and we yell at our kids, and we cut ethical corners at work is because there's something in our hearts more important to us than God, whether it's our comfort or our reputation or a lifestyle we've been pursuing for years. Look back at chapter 3, verse 10, before where I read. This is where Paul starts quoting a bunch of passages from the Old Testament to bolster his point. He says, It is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. Not even Brett, not even Ryan, not even you. He says no one seeks for God because we're all seeking something less 
And we know this. We know we don't even live up to our own conscience, right? We, we leave good words unsaid and good deeds undone. We refuse to forgive. We keep what we should share. We don't stick out our neck to defend those who need defending. I've never met anyone who thought they were perfect. We don't, we don't assure ourselves by saying, I have never slipped up. We reassure ourselves by saying, God must grade on a curve. It's the only way this works. God must grade on a curve, and I bet that I'm above average. I, I, I think I can beat the curve. I think, I think I'm going to be okay. That's what we assure ourselves with. But does God grade on a curve? Are you sure? Because the reason why it's a problem that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is something that Paul, in chapter 1, calls the wrath of God. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All of it. All ungodliness. All unrighteousness of men. He goes on to mention as examples of what God's wrath is revealed against, covetousness, envy, deceit, gossip, disobeying parents. And he says, In verse 32 of chapter 1, he says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says, The wages of sin is death. So we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned, and we all, this is hard to think about, deserve to die. And I know it's hard to think about, but here's the picture I want you to have in your head. I want you to be thinking, imagine that you are sitting in the examination room of a doctor's office. And the doctor has this real serious look on his face, okay? There's something, there's something incredibly important he needs to tell you. And he doesn't look worried because he knows there's a cure for what you have. But before you can appreciate the cure, you need to understand how serious your situation is. And that's, that's us this morning. There's a cure for sin, and Paul's going to show it to us. But first we need to understand the danger, God has to punish sin because God is perfectly holy. He has no impurity, no unrighteousness. Habakkuk, in the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk says, he says of God, you, you, have, you are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. Like, God is so holy, he can't, he can't even look at sin. It revolts him, it repulses him. God's wrath isn't just God kind of flying off the handle because he didn't get his coffee. It's just not, you don't just like tiptoe around God and once he settles down, no more wrath. God's wrath is his holy, just opposition to sin. And he has to punish it. If he didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be a perfect king. Think think about this. Imagine you read this in the Compass this week. That government decided as a Christmas gift to the island, they're just going to release everyone from the justice system who's at any stage. So people who are arrested, awaiting trial, people going through trial, people already sentenced, everybody goes free, right? Child abusers and bank robbers and murderers, everybody goes free. Merry Christmas! We'd be outraged because the, the role of government is to punish crime. It's to keep us safe. It's to do justice. And that's how God has to be too. We know there needs to be justice. We just don't want it for ourselves. But God must be just, and there's no way we can clean ourselves up. We can't can't fix it by coming to church. 
We can't fix it by resolving now we're going to keep the Ten Commandments. New Year's resolution, we're going to do better. We can't fix it that way. We can't fix it by maybe if we just sell all we have, move overseas, become missionaries, then, then God will approve it. We can't fix it that way. We can't fix ourselves. We need to be righteous in order to escape God's wrath, but we need that righteousness to come from somewhere else. And that's exactly what God offers. That's Paul's good news. So the first key word was sin. The second key word, which we will all enjoy more, is justification. God counts sinners righteous through faith in Jesus. Look again at what Paul says in verse 21. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So, so Paul says there's a righteousness of God that's for us. We can understand how the righteousness of God could be against us, right? Because we, we've fallen short of the glory of God. We sin. We deserve to die. But Paul says the righteousness of God can be for us, for all who believe. How can that be? Well, keep reading. He says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So if you think about it, you can imagine what it might mean to be justified. Because we know what it's like to try to justify ourselves, right? Imagine, imagine at work, there's a massive mistake made on a project for a key client. And someone else at work is falsely accusing you of making the mistake. That this is, this is their fault. They did this. this is, we've got we to can them. Now, your instinct, your impulse, your immediate priority is, I've got to justify myself. I've got to show that I'm in the right. I didn't do this. That I, that I am okay. This isn't my fault. Or imagine that you, you have some friends over for a dinner party. And, and there's still like, now I'm imagining my own living room. Thomas the train is on the floor. And there's like food from breakfast. You know, eggs splattered on the floor. And your spouse explains to your guests, I'm so sorry that the house is the way that it is. I asked him to sweep the floor and pick up all the toys. And, and I think, this is, now this is not a real scenario. Don't, don't think that my wife has ever done this. But you think, you never told me to do that. And your instinct would be to justify yourself, to prove that this isn't my fault. She never asked me. I, I'm innocent. So, so to be justified is to be proven right, to be vindicated, to be shown to be innocent. Um, to be shown to be right. Now, I've, I've had occasion to feel justified recently in a pretty trivial way. I've, I've said before um, that I am a huge fan of Star Wars, and I've been a fan of Star Wars since I was a child. And you may find this hard to believe, but there, there were seasons of my life where it actually wasn't that cool to be a fan of Star Wars, like to love it to the degree that I did. I remember when, when my wife and I were dating, and she first came to visit my parents and saw my high school room and opened the cabinet that contained my action figures, lightsabers, books, and collectible Pepsi cans, I remember the look on her face, and it wasn't one of admiration, right? There was, there was eye-rolling involved when she realized the extent to which I love Star Wars. But all of a sudden, Star Wars is cool again, right? And I was right all along. I feel justified in loving Star Wars. So, but all those kinds of justification, all those examples, pale in comparison to the justification we need from God because we're all guilty. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and and we all 
deserve to be labeled that way. The Bible says that the Bible says that we will all be held accountable to God, that every human will stand for judgment before God, and we all deserve for the verdict over us to be pronounced guilty. That's what we deserve. But Paul says that we can be justified by his grace as a gift, which means that we could stand before God and God could know everything we've done, all the deceit, all the envy, all the lies, all the anger. In view of all of that, God could still joyfully pronounce over us not guilty, innocent, free to go. We could be justified by grace. We can know now without a doubt that God sees us as righteous and will for eternity. That's what it means to be justified, and that's what Paul says can happen to us. So what do you think you have to do in order to get that, to know that God counts you righteous even though you're not? Do you think you have to go on some sort of spiritual pilgrimage, that you have to, you have to take a vow of poverty, give away all that you have, that you have to do countless hours of penance, make restitution for all your wrongs. No, Paul tells us how it comes in verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. As a gift. And how many of you had an experience on Christmas morning where someone handed you this beautifully wrapped parcel and you unwrapped it and opened it, your face lit up, you were so happy, and then they just kind of stood there like, just waiting, kind of waiting for you to reimburse them For the present, that didn't happen to anybody, right? Because if you had to pay them back, it wouldn't be a gift. Paul says that justification comes by God's grace as a gift. You don't have to work for it. It comes by his grace. His grace is his freely given goodness. It's him treating us with kindness and favor, even though we don't deserve it. God justifies sinners, not because of what we deserve, but because of his love and his goodness. So I wonder for you, how confident do you feel that God approves of you, accepts you, loves you completely? Would you say that you're 50-50? Maybe not at all? Maybe 99% with just, just a hint of a doubt. And, and when you feel insecure in God's love, what do you do? Do you, do you kind of do something a little extra for God to put you over the top? A little extra generous this week? Church, four weeks in a row. Just try to, try to get on his good list. Listen, you can stop working for God's love. You can stop trying to get his approval through the things that you do. Justification comes by grace. It's a gift. God counts sinners righteous by grace. But then who, who receives the gift? How does it come? Look back at 22, verse 22. Paul says that it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. If it came through work, it wouldn't be grace. It comes through faith, through believing, through trusting. And it's not just kind of a general faith in God, like I believe there is a God, I believe God is out there. He says it's faith in Jesus Christ. Specifically, trust in Jesus. So what what does Jesus have to do to this? How how does Jesus play into this scenario? Well, Jesus has everything to do with this. So the third and final word we want to look at from the passage, this is the the big one, the $10 word. 
The word is propitiation. You might want to say that out loud just to get used to it. Propitiation. Propitiation. Jesus is our righteous substitute. So when I was describing grace to you, did it sound a little bit too good to be true? Like God could just look at me, see that I've sinned, see that I've fallen short, and God could just decide to call me righteous. He could just snap his fingers, cost me nothing, righteous standing with God. And, and if you think that it costs nothing, then it is too good to be true. Because it, even though it doesn't cost us anything, it costs someone everything. Look again at verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Justification comes as a gift, but it comes through redemption. Do you guys know what it means to redeem something? It means to buy it back, to set it free by a payment, by paying a price. So if you pawn something at a pawn shop, they're going to hold on to it until you redeem it, until you pay the price and get it back. And at the time of the New Testament, you, redemption, redeeming is something you could do for people. So um, a slave or a servant could be redeemed by paying off their master. A prisoner of war could be redeemed through an exchange. A criminal could be redeemed. And Paul says that redemption is what Jesus has done for us, that we were all under a sentence of condemnation, that we were under the wrath of God, that we deserve to die, and that we've, there's been a redemption. We've been redeemed. There's been a payment made that sets us free, that makes us righteous. And the payment, he tells us, is that strange word, propitiation. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. I told you guys earlier this story about that professor, Dr. Harris, who said, I'm glad I didn't have to choose, but if I did... Well, I I stopped before he did. He went on, and he narrowed the entire Bible down to, I'm glad I don't have to choose, but if I did, I would choose propitiation. If he had to pick out of the entire Bible one word to hold on to, that is the word he would keep. So what is it? A propitiation is a sacrifice that turns aside wrath by satisfying it. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment. But propitiation turns it aside so we can receive God's love and favor instead. And the the word points back to something in the Old Testament called the mercy seat. Okay, you might remember that when God brought his people out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus, when he set them free, he told Moses to build something called the tabernacle. It was a tent. It was like a mobile temple where God's presence could travel with his people. And in the tabernacle, there were two rooms, one after the other. And the first room was called the holy place. And in the holy place, priests would come and go. They would um, light lamps. They would burn incense. They would set out ceremonial bread. But through the holy place was another room called the most holy place, the holy of holies. And in there, only one person could go, the high priest, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. It's a gold box. It's got some cherubim over it. It's got the Ten Commandments, the original ones inside. This is what Indiana Jones is looking for in Raiders of the Lost Ark, if that helps, if that helps you visualize what it is. And the top of that box 
of the ark is the mercy seat. And it's called that. It's called a seat because God's presence dwelt above it. And it's called the mercy seat because on the day of atonement, the high priest would take the blood of a goat and he would go into the most holy place and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and God would have mercy. Though the people deserve judgment and condemnation because they've fallen short, God would accept the life of the goat, the blood of the goat, in place of the people. They would go free. They would be released. They would be redeemed. Now, if they thought about that very long, that would probably make very little sense. Like, how can the life of a goat make up for the death sentence deserved by an entire nation of people? But God said to do it, so they did it, year after year. But Paul says that the real propitiation, the real sacrifice that turns aside God's wrath by satisfying it isn't a goat or a thousand goats. It's a spotless lamb. It's Jesus. Jesus is the true propitiation. He's the sacrifice that turns aside wrath by satisfying it. Paul says that God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. He's talking about the cross. He's saying on the cross, Jesus, who alone was truly righteous, voluntarily took the wrath we all deserve for our sin. Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God, died in the place of those who fell short of the glory of God. He's the perfectly righteous substitute. He's fully man, which means he can stand in the place of men. And he's fully God, which means he can die, not just for one person, but for everyone who would ever put their trust in him. This is the best news in the world. God, against whom we have all sinned, who must punish sin, God provided the substitute. God gave us his son. And God can treat you And me, though we're sinners, as though we were perfectly righteous because he treated his perfectly righteous son as though he were a sinner on the cross. And we can receive God's righteousness as a gift by grace. You don't need to do anything to earn this gift. It comes by grace. And if you receive this gift, you can know today that regardless of what's in your past, regardless of what's in your future, that God counts you righteous in his sight. And that when you come to the end of your life and you stand before God, he will say, welcome. I approve of you. You are innocent in my sight because of what Jesus has done. Enter into my joy. The gift comes to everyone who trusts in Jesus, who acknowledges that he's the son of God, that he's the only savior, that they need what only he can provide. It comes to all who believe, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, straight-laced, hell-raising, young and old. Paul says there's no distinction. Anyone who trusts in Jesus can be justified in God's sight now and forever. Do you see how great God's love is for you? The Apostle John wrote in one of his letters, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This strange word, propitiation, is the key to understanding God's love for you. And understanding God's love for you is the key to having joy that lasts all year round.
So in a nutshell, here's what you and I need to remember this morning and every day. God accepts as righteous every sinner who trusts in Jesus. God accepts as righteous every sinner who trusts in Jesus. I don't know what was troubling you when you came in this morning. Maybe regret, maybe feelings of guilt and shame about something you've done in the past that you can never make up for. And this passage means that God can cleanse you from that in his sight forever. He can take care of your guilt and your shame. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's a feeling coming through Christmas like everybody else has someone except me. But this passage shows that you are already, you're already loved beyond your wildest dreams. Maybe you came in this morning carrying fear. There's something going on in your life that you feel like it's just going to unravel everything. Your, your perfect life is going to fall apart. Everyone's going to see you for who you really are. And this passage tells you that God already sees that you're a much bigger mess than you realize, and he has sent his son to take care of you. Whatever is weighing on you, if you trust in Jesus, God has taken care of your most serious problem, sin, through providing perfect righteousness, justification, at the cost of the life of his son, propitiation. And now whatever it is you go through this week, if you trust in Jesus, you have the love of God with you as you go. And in him, you have joy that nothing in this world can rob you of. So maybe, I hope, you'll remember 2016 as the year when you resolved to stop trying to earn God's love and receive it through Christ as a gift. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we, I don't even know how to begin to thank you. We acknowledge, Lord, that you have shown love that we can't fathom. That you, though perfectly righteous, though eternally happy in the presence of your Father, you suffered death on a cross so that we could be righteous and be welcomed forever. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be mindful of this every day, that we would remember your love, we would remember the righteousness we have, not by working for it, but as a gift through Christ, and that you would give us joy that transforms our lives, and that through that joy and through our trust in you, you would give us opportunities to speak about this Christ to others. Father, please help us to know your love through the sacrifice of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.